Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Nico Mele, author, digital strategist, and the Wallace Annenberg Chair at the USC Annenberg School of Journalism. He spoke about the challenges facing news organizations in the age of social media and dramatic declines in print revenue. Mele, who is also the former senior vice president and deputy publisher of the Los Angeles Times, discussed different approaches to media business models as well as offering his thoughts on how the use of social media has impacted the 2016 presidential campaign. Moderating the event is Michael Ignatiev, the Edward R. Murrow Professor of Press, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Nico Mele almost needs no introduction. He feels part of the Shorenstein family because he was the Edward R. Morrow lecturer at the Shorenstein Center in the spring of uh, <clears throat> 2009. In 2008, he was a fellow at the IOP. Before that, he uh, was the webmaster on Governor Howard Dean's 2004 campaign, which, as anybody knows, was a pathbreaker in terms of the use of the social media. From that experience and others, Nico uh, consolidated a reputation as an expert in the relationship between social media and uh, politics and wrote a book called The End of Big, How the Internet Makes David the New Goliath. I have deep envy for that title. (laughs) I am terrible at titles and admire good ones that sell lots of copies. So there we are. And um, he then went on to become the Senior Vice President and Deputy Publisher of the LA Times, and is now the Wallace Annenberg Chair in Journalism at USC Annenberg School of Journalism in Los Angeles. And it's a great pleasure to have you back, Nico. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here uh, and to see so many friends in the room. I'm talking today about the business of journalism. Uh, Having just been in the trenches for a little over a year, uh, I thought it was, I want to share some of my observations. And I'll start by thinking about a few seminal events in kind of recent or modern American history. The first was the death of John F. Kennedy. And most Americans who were alive at the time remember as a kind of important part central to their memories of that event Walter Cronkite taking off his glasses and crying. And then if we fast forward a little bit and we hit another kind of major moment in American history, Watergate, what comes to mind is Woodward and Bernstein and their role in shaping and breaking that story. And then if we go from there to the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think most people think of CNN. It was kind of a a foundational moment for cable news in covering the fall of the Berlin Wall. And when I think about September 11th, I always think about Rudy Giuliani doing those live press conferences on TV twice a day. But then if we get to the killing of Osama bin Laden, many Americans found out about that via Twitter and Facebook. There wasn't a, there wasn't a journalist at the heart of that story uh, when, it, when it broke Sunday, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. It was Keith Urban who was the, had been in the Pentagon as Donald Rumsfeld's speechwriter tweeted to about 300 followers, I have it on good authority, Osama bin Laden has been killed. And people who knew who Keith was and understood he spoke with some authority retweeted it, and in a matter of 90 minutes, it truly went viral across the internet. Um, and interestingly enough, the first mainstream reporter to to retweet it was uh, Brian Stelter, who at the time was, I think, covering entertainment, not national security or Washington, D.C. And so it really shaped, in a sense, I want to use that that to kind of shape this discussion, that if we think about the three core parts of journalism in the public space, we can think about uh, the production of journalism, the distribution of journalism, and the business of journalism, the funding of journalism. And I think in both the in both the production and the distribution, we have that pretty well figured out, more or less. Uh, 
You have uh, everything from instant articles on Facebook to uh, social media desks and audience editors at many mainstream publications. The production of digital journalism, the distribution of digital journalism, I would suggest those are pretty well understood. What's not well understood is how we make money or fund journalism in the digital age. And this is an issue of profound importance. Uh, there's about half, half as many journalists employed in the United States as there were when the Berlin Wall came down. The uh, Overwhelmingly, the not, uh, journalists are employed by newspapers. Newspapers and newspaper newsrooms are the primary employer of journalists and freelancers. And I think it's fair to say that the newspaper industry is in a profound moment of uh, business crisis. And it's not a new moment, but I'll, I'll illustrate like this. In 2007, Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal for $5.4 billion. <coughs> Today, with $5.4 billion, you could buy Gannett, McClatchy, Tribune, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and probably the Boston Globe and still have some money left over. That speaks to the reality of the last three years. Newspapers have had double-digit revenue declines pretty much across the board. You know, McClatchy is in danger of being delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. Um, a core part of newspaper revenue is what they call preprint advertising, which you could think of as those big coupons in your Sunday paper. Uh, Preprint is between 20 to 60% of most municipal papers' revenue. And uh, first of all, many of the largest purchasers of preprint, purchasers like Best Buy and Walmart, are facing profound uh, challenges in their own markets and businesses. And second of all, we're looking at really substantial preprint declines. If the next three years look like the last three years, uh, I think we're going to look at the 50 largest metropolitan newspapers in the country, and we can expect somewhere between a third to a half of them to go out of business. And I don't think that's actually a radical or unusual statement. That's a, that's a point of fact about the state of the industry today. And it's a, it's a dangerous one for the health of our democracy. It's a dangerous one if we care about holding power accountable. And it's not just it's not just newspapers. If we look at uh, if we look at some of the new entrants into the market, if we look at BuzzFeed, who clearly you know, has some ambition to win a Pulitzer in the next 36 months, if we look at Vox or Vice or some of the big players in the market, they're almost to a T, all of them funded by uh, venture capital. The, the, none of them are yet true public companies with a clear sense of what their revenue equation looks like. Which leads us to kind of a really fundamental question. How are we going to fund journalism? Uh, certainly part of the future of journalism is, uh, is <coughs> going to be uh, philanthropic and uh, government funding. I think that's a necessary and larger piece of the equation. But ultimately, uh, you know, those of, I'm sure a lot of people in the room have seen Spotlight. Right? For me, the definitive moment in Spotlight is when Marty Barron is sitting across from the Cardinal, and the Cardinal says, well, all the institutions of the city have to work together. And Marty says, well, I, don't, I don't think so, actually. You know, our job as a newspaper is to hold power accountable across every institution. And I think that, uh, that what has fueled and animated American journalism for the last century has been a degree of economic independence that uh, that the that the that the success of print advertising has allowed, and that has really fueled a lot of uh, a lot of fueled the power of the fourth estate in, in 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 our democracy, and so to that end, I think that it is essential and important to figure out sustainable funding models for journalism, ways of keeping journalism independent, not foundation or major donor funded, not government funded, but actually as standalone uh, successful entities. And I'll offer a few observations on how we might get there. You know, um, the first thing is to just recognize that uh, for 150 years, Almost all journalism was funded by advertising, period. 
And in fact, most media has been funded by advertising. And I'm fairly confident when we look back on the 20th century, it's going to look kind of lunatic that advertising funded all this media. Uh, you know, I think we've just passed through an area of, you could say, peak advertising. The reality is that, uh, you know, Wanamaker, the, the, the shopping center magnet, famously said 1% or half of my advertising works. I just don't know which half. And the reality is it's more like 0.0001% of your advertising works. And you can figure out exactly which 0.001% these days. And so I think uh, revenue diversity is an essential part of the future of news. And that's organizationally a real challenge. You have giant publicly traded corporations built around really one thing, ad sales. It's the organizational structure. It's the expertise of teams. And building other streams of revenue is hard. It's hard to imagine and build different ways of doing it. And in, in particular, there are two, two, two revenue streams I'm very interested in that I think are underappreciated, underinvested in. And the first is what you could call subscription revenue or paid content. Historically, it's been a relatively small part of newspapers' business. It has been no part of television news' business. And uh, depending on how you think about NPR radio, you could say, in some sense, membership is something like a subscription revenue stream. But, um, but the reality is that uh, I think we have, to, we have to build better subscription-based models for revenue uh, on, online. The New York Times has been a leader in this. You know, they have built a really impressive digital subscription program, but there's really no other uh, broad public entity or even local journalism entity other than NPR stations that have built any substantial paid revenue stream. And uh, part of the challenge, I think, is an over-reliance on paywalls. People think you put up a wall and that's how you're going to force people to pay. And actually, I think that um, that building, building a subscription base is a lot more about engaging people in a variety of channels, not just sitting around and waiting for them to hit your paywall. I think a second challenge in building paid subscription is the role of the big digital platforms, specifically Google and Facebook, but others, who, you know, I think are not predisposed. They don't like paid content. They don't like paid paywalls. Uh, you know, Google is Google is pretty explicit about this, that if you find an article via Google search, uh, Google Google rewards you for making it free, for exempting it from the paywall. I think it's pretty notable that the Wall Street Journal, uh, for years people would send me a Wall Street Journal article and I couldn't get in if I clicked on the link. So I just Google the headline and then I could get in. And then a couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal quietly turned that off, right? Um, and I'm sure that for uh, companies like Google and Facebook, where a substantial portion of their traffic and business is really built around uh, free access to this kind of quality content, uh, they have real incentives to keep that access open. Uh, and so if one part of the, if we think about the future of journalism as being about revenue diversity and a big chunk of that is being more aggressive and uh, more innovative on how we acquire and keep digital subscribers for paid content, I think another one is rethinking some of the rules around uh, how around advertising. You know, uh, newspapers and uh, newspapers and TV stations especially have pretty hard walls between the newsroom and the advertising sales team for very good reasons, right? We need editorial integrity and we need uh, independence and we have to be able to hold power accountable and we never want anyone to have even the slightest hint that uh, an advertising buy has influenced coverage in any way, shape or form. Uh, but advertisers increasingly on the internet are most interested in what is called native advertising or brand advertising, which you could think of as product placement in a sense. And there's a huge appetite for this. And some of the most successful and lucrative uh, digital ventures out there like Vice have giant in-house agencies doing this kind of co-branded content, doing, doing a kind of blend of advertising and journalism that makes anyone in the industry with, I think, with any history uncomfortable. 
And I, I think that is, it's important that we have industry-wide a real discussion and come to some sense of what appropriate standards are. Because the old standards, where the advertising team is on one side of the building, the newspaper team, the newsroom, the journalists are on a different side, maybe a different building. I'm not sure that is a reality that will sustain itself in the current economic environment. And that doesn't mean that we should throw that wall away. It means we have to come to some new norms and standards for how we're going to make sure we preserve the integrity of newsrooms, but also help meet the, the needs of being economically sustainable and viable. And I don't think that discussion has happened in any substantial way in the industry. And I think we have to have it really fast because it's a reality of where advertising dollars are to the extent there are any advertising dollars. And finally, I think that uh, we've surrendered too much to, to the technology industry. To a large extent, Facebook and Google really substantially own audiences' attention in a way that newspapers used to. Uh, ad tech networks actually own the advertisers online. And so very few uh, news organizations really actually have that much relationship with their advertisers anymore, thanks to programmatic ad networks and ad buying and the way that ecosystem works. And then, you know, Craigslist and Nextdoor and other community sites have really kind of captured classifieds revenues in a substantial way. And I, I think it, we're a decade overdue to fight the fight on those three fronts. But I don't think it's, I don't, I don't believe it's too late. And my ex brief and shining experience with the LA Times suggests that communities are actually hungry for their, the brands they trust in their communities and their news to fight back on all three fronts. I think uh, in closing, and then I'm happy to take questions, uh, I think we need an order of magnitude more innovation in the business models and the space. It needs to be in real dialogue about the values and standards at the heart of journalism, but, um, but to not discuss them is putting the entire industry in peril. I think that the second thing I'd say is that, you know, the reality is for a long time, newspapers was like one of the most lucrative businesses you could be in. I think it was all margin. There was a lot of money. And uh, I think that has set salaries and expectations around talent at unsustainable levels. And that the future of journalism is small, scrappy enterprises that are, that are entrepreneurial, that are innovative, that are trying things. And that means that the economic expectations of the performance of those institutions is, uh, it has to be reset. I think it was actually Jim, uh, Jim Jay, when he was here as a Shaughnessy fellow, you know, really started to write a book about the thesis of which I think I will paraphrase and say that it was greed that in some sense killed journalism, not the internet. That publicly traded companies trying to sustain double digit margins and quarter over quarter growth created real challenges. And the, the business had been so good and so lucrative for so long, salaries had ballooned so dramatically that any kind of real substantial pivot was a challenge. And finally, order of magnitude more innovation, resetting our expectations about economic performance that news is not a wildly lucrative but could be a modestly profitable business. Uh, third is that, um, you know, I think the great challenge in, in this whole affair is how we build really sustainable local models for journalism. I think institutions like the New York Times will forever exist providing national and global news. I wish there was more competition in that space. <coughs> You know, Michael Massing in the New York Review of Books has written two essays about the way the New York Times and other large institutions have not adequately examined the wealth gap and the role of billionaires in our society. I think as an example of lack of competition in the national and global news space uh, is, is, is potentially dangerous for the industry. So I wish there was more competition, but ultimately there's always an appetite for presidential election news. There's always an appetite for stock market performance news. What is much more challenging is, you know, the Los Angeles Transit Authority has a multi-billion dollar annual budget, 
and there's not enough. Uh, uh, there's not a cold, clear eye looking at that agency, its performance, its public officials, its budget uh, in a way that's going to keep the democracy healthy and hold that kind of power accountable. So I'll stop there and happy to take any questions. Certainly <coughs> eager to discuss and dive into anything about the business of news and, in any detail, but also having worked from a, for a politician from Vermont who ran an internet-fueled presidential campaign, also very happy to talk about that. Um, okay, in my, uh, my role as chairman is to start it off with questions, um, and I had, I had two, which is slightly pushing it. You went to the you went to the LA Times um, to, to be part of a turnaround effort. Um, I'm wondering whether you could take your general remarks here and take us through briefly as you can what, what that was, what you learned from a turnaround effort that, that didn't work. Uh, secondly, um, and picking up on the, the, the politics question, in the very, very distant past, in the hazy, distant recesses of time when dinosaurs stalked the earth, i.e. 2004, you were a pioneer in the relationship between, in the use of social media in political campaigns. Now in this, you know, 12 years later, <clears throat> we seem to be, have we done a step change or are we in continuity with what started then? Um, what do you see as being new and distinctively new about the use of social media and political campaigns now in 2016. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll start with my experience at the Los Angeles Times, which I frankly loved. It was near impossible, but it was it was an <laughs> exceptional experience. And I'm grateful to all the many friends and colleagues I had there. And I would say, you know, the Los Angeles Times and Tribune Company in general has a history of a lot of turmoil. Uh, you know, Sam Zell famously, uh, 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 you could say, really loaded it up with debt and created a lot of challenges in his management style and approach. Um, and most recently had been through pretty substantial bankruptcy and restructuring. Uh, I joined the company right after it had been split into two companies. Uh, and I'll note two of the largest news companies in the United States, Tribune and Gannett, did the same thing inside of 12 months. They took all of the profitable assets, the TV stations, the radio stations, the real estate, the buildings we were in, um, anything that was making real money and put it in one company and put all the newspapers in a second company and split the two companies. And that happened at Tribune. There's a slightly different but similar story with what happened with Gannett. I think that is a harbinger of doom for the newspapers. Uh, I'll note the stock price is like approximately a quarter of what it was 12 months ago. And uh, so I was walking into uh, a company with a history of challenges, and, uh, and a company with a history of challenges, an industry with a history of challenges. And uh, but sometimes at the moment of great crisis, there's the greatest opportunity to make substantial change to really it's when people are most desperate that you can affect some real institutional turnaround. And uh, one of the most remarkable things I experienced, uh, uh, which in retrospect isn't rocket science, but uh, the city of Los Angeles is white people are really a minority in the city of Los Angeles. And I don't mean like 40%. <laughs> I mean really a minority in the city of Los Angeles. It is a remarkably, incredibly diverse place. It is not just Latino and not just Asian, but I, there's something like uh, roughly 40 nationalities whose largest native speaker population outside the home geography is Los Angeles. It is an incredibly diverse place. And... Um, and the institution, I think, uh, had not really entirely captured that, had not mm. uh, or had been slow to understand that change. And in many ways, that was less the newsroom and more on the advertising and the business side. The reality that the very market we were trying to address that should have been our core strength had changed dramatically in 20 years. And so... 
Uh, I think that is broadly true uh, for municipal uh, news companies across the board. The, the, very, uh, the very demographics and ethnic makeup of our communities and our cities uh, are changing much faster than we're able to recognize in some sense. I mean, 2014-2015 was the first school year when across the United States, K through 12, white students were a minority, mm -hmm. right? That's a profound change in who we are as a nation. And our media needs to understand and represent that change both inside the newsrooms um, and as well as in, in the business models and in the relationships with advertisers. And so that was probably one of my number one takeaways was that um, you, you have to be a part of your community. You have to understand it. You have to, uh, you know, th there's this curious thing about being a newspaper publisher that on the one hand, you're, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to balance the needs of the advertising side of the business and the newsroom and the integrity of the newsroom. But you also really, I think, have to be a visible pillar in the community and you have to be a leader in your community. And I think especially with corporate consolidation in newspapers, publishers as real civic leaders has, has declined and that's really impacted the economics in, in an unexpected but substantial way. <coughs> I think on the second question, um, when I was Howard Dean's internet director in 03, you know, we raised approximately, Overall, he raised about $50 million of approximately 30 million of it was raised online with an average gift of $77. And uh, it was raised almost entirely from email solicitations. That is exactly the playbook that Bernie Sanders is, is operating under right now. The industry is, it is, when I did it, it was not an industry. It didn't, ex there was no professional standards. There was no, it was not like people got up and decided to pursue a career in A-B testing. <laughs> but in, uh, but in today's world, it is, it is a real industry. It is a professional uh, field and there are exceptional practitioners in it. And I would, I would say what Bernie is, what Bernie's campaign is doing is pretty a pretty well understood playbook. It was not only the moveon.org playbook, it was the Howard Dean playbook, it was the Ron Paul playbook, it was the Barack Obama playbook. It, it, it's like a really, at this point, well understood discipline. And um, it's not a surprise to me that it has been so successful. In fact, I dare say I predicted it in my book. And not only that, but in 2013, in 2013, I wrote a piece for Politico saying Hillary will not have a clear path to the nomination because the Internet hates a front runner and the Internet can fund uh, a disruption. And uh, and the question on my mind in 2013 was, does Hillary's candidacy as the first woman president trump the Internet's distrust slash hatred of front runners and establishment. And I think we're in the middle of finding out the answer to that. Uh, I'll note, I think there is a different dynamic at work with Donald Trump. I am quite certain that if Twitter did not exist, Trump would not be a credible candidate. He really, he announced he was running for president on Twitter. He has used Twitter to shape and control the media conversation to steal attention from his rivals anytime they start to get any kind of traction, to speak directly to the American people, to be remarkably grassroots in his engagement online. Um, I, you know, it was again, I think another seminal paper out of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, Peter Hamby wrote a piece about the 2012 election and the role of Twitter in shaping the 2012 election, which is remarkably prescient in anticipating the way Trump is using Twitter in this cycle to uh, shape the, 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 the dynamics of the race. And I think there, you know, I think it's super, it's super interesting, but feels to your question, Michael, consistent with the trajectory of the, the role the technology has had in fundraising, in persuasion, and in shaping public opinion. Okay, we've 
Thank you. I think we all found this completely fascinating. Uh, we got questions, and <laughs> have we got a microphone, or are we not? We're just no. We're not we, going to do a microphone. Question. Uh, and students go first. So uh, introduce yourself down there. You look like a student. <laughs> <laughs> Say who you are. One question per customer, please. Yeah, my name is Timothy. I'm not entirely a student. I'm a journalist from Holland, and I'm here as a Neiman Fellow. Well, let, 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 me be, let me be unpleasant and get a real student, because I think... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hi, um, um, my name is Joseph Matton. I'm a first-year graduate student at the Middle Eastern Center and a journalist in the Middle East. Um, my question is really about the newspaper industry, the Independent in the UK, and its sister publication have just finished, or about to finish, their print terminally. Um, and for me, at least, it seems like the most exciting change in the industry in decades. And I'm wondering whether you think newspapers need to have the paper, whether they need to keep printing, or whether they can actually transition successfully. Well, uh, this is a Faustian bargain. Digital revenue, you know, there's a, there's a somewhat trite saying, but it's astonishingly true, that uh, we're trading analog advertising dollars for digital pennies. <laughs> and that's actually a reality. And so um, in some ways, I wish I could say we don't need the paper, but the print advertising in the paper is still generating a lot of revenue uh, and really funds journalism substantially. And the problem is, that's like that old SAT question. You have a pond, and you have lilies in the pond. And the lilies, there's one lily, day one, and the lilies double every day. What day does the pond, is the pond half full? And, you know, day 29, the pond is half full, and day 30, the pond is full. And I think that's a very good way of understanding the, the, uh, the, 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 the dilemma the industry is in. Print advertising is generating the vast majority of the revenue for journalism. And yet, uh, it's actually remarkably expensive to print and deliver a newspaper. Mm. And if current declines continue, we will wake up one day and the print revenue will only pay for the print and delivery of the actual paper, not for the journalists. And, uh, and if I had to guess, that day is in the next three to five years. Given, I mean, it's not, you know, if you look at between nine to 14% declines in revenue the last three years, industry-wide, you have another three years of that, and you're in real trouble. Um, and so uh, the other thing I would say about the UK is two exceptional things happened in the last month. One of the, one of the strange things about the current era of journalism is that many institutions have the largest audiences they've ever had and yet dramatically declining revenue. A good example is The Guardian. The Guardian has, I think, the certainly the largest audience it's ever had. And depending on who you look at globally, it's ranked digitally as the second or third news source in the world. And yet they just announced they have to cut $70 million out of their budget. That is just the reality of the dynamics of the industry right now. And it's unpleasant. And it needs to be a clarion call not for fear and craziness, but for increased innovation, for more failure until we're able to find models that work more aggressively. And I think we have a pretty good idea where those models are. The other thing is, you may have seen the BBC announced they were doing away with the radio and TV divisions. They're making it a single blended, you know, they're not going to distinguish this. Now, I am obsessed with the BBC uh, radio show, uh, Melvin Bragg, In Our Time. I listen to it every day, and I listen to it entirely as a podcast, and I never would have found it without the podcast. I don't think of it as a radio show at all. And so for the BBC to kind of, uh, you know, I think the distinctions in newsrooms between channels are really only distinctions inside the institutions. They're not distinctions that audiences recognize or experience. A uh, student question down at the bottom, sir. Thank you. Uh, I just want to ask you, what do you think about Lendl? That is this new uh, startup from Holland that is trying to yeah. create like a yeah. Netflix or Spotify model. Well, well Blendel's, Blendel's model is <coughs> not really a, 
the Spotify model is a subscription model, right? You pay 10 bucks or 15 bucks and it's all you can eat. And Blendo's model is really more of a pay per piece. It's like iTunes, you buy the songs $2.99 or $0.99 cents a piece. And so Blendle is pioneering what you could call a micropayment model uh, for news. And, um, you know, I think that uh, I think there's some opportunity there. Uh, it really hasn't been rolled out in the United States in any substantial way. And I, I broadly think that micropayments are probably part of the future of content generally. But um, but there's two things. There's two challenges in the micropayment world. Right. Um, the first is that people are not used to paying for content. We kind of have made a terrible mistake as an industry in that sense. And the second is that micropayments are most useful if it's, uh, you know, the reason why iTunes work is there's really only one iTunes. You go and you buy the song from iTunes. Where else are you going to buy the song? And, you know, when we look at our media diets and our media consumption, you might, you might visit you, you, you can actually download for Chrome an extension that will do this for you, or you can do it yourself. You might consume 30 different outlets a day, mm. single pieces from each one, without ever really realizing it. The vast majority of Americans, and increasingly the world, their media diets are shaped by social media, by Facebook, by Twitter, by Google, by email, and not by brand loyalty to an individual outlet. And so here, my media diet is from 20 or 30 different outlets. I don't want to create an account on each one in order to spend a dollar on each one to buy an article. You know, and iTunes solved this problem. But I'll point out the way Apple managed to solve this problem for the, for the industry was they introduced a piece of hardware, the iPod, that changed how people listen to music. And so they were the, their, their piece of hardware was the single point of entry to music. So then they could put a star in it, right? <laughs> and I, I just, I don't think the pay per piece model has as much promise or opportunity in the, in the content space because it's, it, it doesn't fit with how people actually consume right now. Um, Arthur? Arthur Applebaum, I think you what do you think is the future of slow journalism? You know, at, at the dawn of the internet age, you know, all, all this talk about you know, electrons are free, you can have long form, you can have easy entry, and that's competing with you know, attention span of 140 yeah. characters. And uh, I, mean, I, I have to admit a kind of bias here. I, I, I want to see people read the New Yorker from cover to cover, including I Try the Bones, even though it's mostly not on <laughs> um, so Is there any prospect for a long form, Absolutely. long form, slow investigative journalism that takes you know, weeks and weeks or months and months? And the pieces end up being kind of long. What, what, yeah. What's going to happen? Right? Uh, uh, so it's kind of interesting that thanks to the physical shape of newsprint, which is kind of like a, a, his, a random historical accident as a constraint, mm -hmm. uh, that most news articles are between 800 and 1,200 words long. The vast, the overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the data shows show that um, that online people want to read less than 200 words or really more than 1500 or even more than 3000 mm -hmm. and so I think that actually our appetites we want either the quick summary of what's going on or we want long in-depth context and and weirdly the, the the news industry is completely situated by historical accident on the middle spot <laughs> that that people don't really want in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think we actually have a pretty clear idea that there's a real desire for both ends. Is there a successful business model for, for slow long form? Um, that is a great question. I think, uh, well, I've seen a number of experiments. There was, you know, Matter was an experiment on that where you paid a monthly subscription fee, you got one exceptional long-form piece a month. Uh, they still exist. They've changed the model a bit. Uh, I think if you look at Kickstarter and Beacon and crowdfunding around long-form, that's pretty substantial. Uh, I'm, I'm part of a new uh, uh, crowdfunding journalism project that started today on Beacon. Beaconreader.com is a platform for crowdfunding long-form in specific. You know, the San Francisco Chronicle is a 
wants money to do a long form piece that they couldn't figure out how to fund otherwise. So uh, I think in many ways there's more experiments in long form than in other than in other kinds of news. Um, and I also think that given the quality and nature of it, people are more willing to pay for it. Uh, I don't think there's industry consensus yet, but there's a lot of discussion in the industry as long form being one of the primary kinds of journalism that people will convert to paying subscriber around. And so I think when people think about the value of journalism in their lives and what's going to compel them to pay for a product at a premium, it is almost exclusively on the long form side. And so I think long form has a lot of promise and, and, and opportunity, um, but, uh, but is constrained by kind of a form factor that, the, that you have generations of journalists trained to write in, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. One just quick data point on that. By long form, we don't just mean a long article. The thing that's extraordinary about long form is the, com the multimedia character of long form. Our Shorenstein Fellow has just written an extraordinary long form piece for the BBC on missing and aboriginal women in Canada, which is video, this, that, photographs, journalism put all together. I mean, it, despite all the gloom, and there's reason to be gloom about the economic model, just as a consumer, I've never had a richer diet. That's the thing that's so paradoxical about it, and this piece would be an example. Okay. I'm going to add actually one other thing, which is when I, one of the things I think a lot about is I think that in print journalism we have some sense of what the digital future of that looks like. But if you look at the nightly news, which was for so long a staple of the American media diet and the public, you can't find any comparable news experience digitally. Mm -hmm. And that is really interesting. And when I started to look at that, it looked to me like that space is in some sense being captured by long-form documentaries and Netflix and mm -hmm. indie docs. And, you know, so that's kind of an interesting trend in the space. Um, back row there. Yeah, sure. sir. Uh, two questions. The first one is uh, you mentioned uh, pay by piece. Uh, are we going to see pay by author at any point? So famous Paul Krugman, you know, his blog, economic <coughs> space, yeah. the most read. Maybe you could monetize that individually. Yeah. And the second question is uh, along similar lines: Is the subscription model more applicable to technical field? So I pay a subscription for the Financial Times. You know, there is a constituency of finance yeah. pundits who want that information, and they're willing and able yeah. to pay. Well, certainly in uh, certainly in. Um, there are niche markets that are exceptionally valuable that will always be subscription based. I mean, Bloomberg, B Bloomberg is a is what a seven billion dollar, eight billion dollar. I don't know exactly annual revenue around essentially news for the financial markets. Uh, and so there's always going to be places. There's always verticals where it's very valuable information, so you can make a lot of money around it. And I think what's in, what I'm concerned about, though, is that's not in service of the public. That's not about the public good. And so what are, what are models that make sense for the, for the public good? I do think that beyond, uh, beyond just uh, financial news and, you know, that uh, niche media is enormously powerful and important. And uh, one of the animating... Uh, ideas or things we use to organize our business and trying to turn around the LA Times is the idea of communities of interest. That, you know, I always talk about my great aunt Edna is 98 and still alive and kicking, and I'm going to go see her here tomorrow morning. She buys the paper every morning and only reads the horoscope. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's funding a lot of journalism. <laughs> Well, and so the great the great question was that you know the internet unbundled that if you wanted sports you could just go to ESPN.com you didn't have to buy the whole paper, and uh, I I think that what BuzzFeed is doing is in a sense a rebundling, you get stupid cat videos and you get some real journalism, right? And uh, and actually Ben Smith sat in this room and and kind of laid that out to some extent. And I, I think I think another way of thinking about rebundling is around niche communities of interest, and especially when you have a geographic catchment area like Los Angeles or Boston, you can really build discrete verticals that have shared infrastructure, that have shared purpose, that cross pollinate each other, but are geared at very specific audience segments. 
What about the pay, so, pay per writer? Yeah, so this is actually something I'm, uh, I, I will point you, to, I'll give a brief answer, but I wrote a very long piece for Neiman Lab on this um, called Platforms for Talent. When I think about, forget journalism for a minute, when I think about the internet, the internet loves individuals. The internet rewards individuals. This is kind of core thesis of my book, right? That we that that if you wanted to buy a computer as powerful as this phone in uh, 30 years ago, you'd have to spend five to ten million dollars. And now there's more. Uh, th there's almost as many smartphones in the United States as Americans. You know, that's a profound reordering of the power dynamics and. Um, and that rewards individuals. If you go look at the top thousand most followed accounts on Twitter, you do not find institutions. You find individuals. You find Barack Obama, you don't find the White House. <coughs> Take the five most followed journalists at the New York Times, and any two of them will be larger than the New York Times following on Twitter. The, the nature of the digital ecosystem is one that rewards individuals and personality and personal brands. And I think this is something the news industry has to embrace, has to recognize the shortcomings and pitfalls and dangers, but has to embrace. And it's it's a staple of television and NPR and radio, right? Their, their news, even, even all things considered, you know, or Morning Edition, are built around radio personalities. And that's what we, th that is an important and viable part of the future of news. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and I'm also a managing editor of um, a hyperlocal magazine, and I am one of two staff members. Uh, we have a combined circulation of about 80,000, um, and we use the rest as freelance. So we have uh, we're at the edge of that line of you know we're paying mostly for the printing of the thing. So how do these really small, stressed hyperlocal, which is a really important thing, how do the, these without a lot of resources, how they pivot to a more sustainable model? <laughs> yes, well, it's hard. <laughs> but it's also, I'll say, the entrepreneurial life in any industry, right? You know, famous story is Piero Midiar was running a, a website that sold Pez dispensers, and he was trying to figure out, and it was, it was okay, but it was tight. Making payroll every time was rough, and he figured out how to pivot it into eBay. So n not that, so I just think first, just recognize that the entrepreneurial life, having been an entrepreneur most of my life, is actually miserable. <laughs> and it's always tight and it's always hard. And two, that uh, entrepreneurs, when they are, the characteristic of entrepreneurs is they're constantly trying new things and figuring, trying to figure out how to grow and scale their business. And so, yes, you have a lot to do in running uh, this publication, but you, you have to figure out how to do more. And that's, I think, uh, I don't think that's, I don't think, I don't think of that as a problem. I don't think of that as, as a characteristic of journalism or how it's failing. I think of that as the nature of entrepreneurship, period. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, I think for a lot of small publications, low-hanging fruit is in events, right? Uh, you see that uh, everybody likes to talk about the Texas Tribune. They've been pretty successful building an events business. You know, uh, to a lesser extent, Voices of San Diego. Um, you know, the Dodge Foundation is funding a group of small two, three-person local journalism things in New Jersey uh, to try and figure out if there are ways of using events to build and other revenue sources, build some sustainability there. I mean, I think one of the, one of the lesson or one of the lessons of kind of our current media diet is it's remarkably, uh, hungry for live experience. I mean, I just was reading about, you know, first of all, TV networks have figured this out and are always trying to figure out how to make more live things, right? I just read they're going to try and do The Simpsons live, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> but um, but uh, everything from the debates to the Grammys to all the musicals that they're doing live on TV, um, the American public in their media life is hungry for more live events. 
And I think that is also a compelling potential revenue stream for publications. And it's nice because it's relatively discreet. You can do one, make a decent amount of money. It's a lot of work, but you don't have to commit to doing 10 a year mm -hmm. until you see if the model bears out. It's also, events are a great way to partner with other organizations and, and build revenue. Um, oh dear, there's gonna be no justice here, I'm afraid. Uh, question here. Uh, hi, I'm Marilyn Thompson, I'm a Shornston Fellow. Um, interested in your comment on journalism salaries. Uh, the LA Times was always known back in the day as the velvet coffin where uh, talented journalists could go to earn high salaries and do somewhat minimal work. Uh, how much of a problem were the salaries as you tried to reshape the LA Times? And how big an issue is that going to be for news organizations going forward, especially those with unionized uh, shops? Yeah. Well, I'll say I don't think, uh, I want to be clear, I don't think this is a problem just of journalism. You can look at, like, Clay Christensen and the innovator's dilemma and understand this is a problem for any established industry, that you figure out a way to have a, you f in any, you figure out a way to have a competitive advantage in the marketplace, you make a lot of money, you have a very healthy business, and then somebody disrupts it because they figure out a different way to do it, and the salary and compensation structure is very different. So I don't, I'm not trying to offer a commentary on LA Times or New York Times or any particular institution. I think that it's pretty common in a well-established industry that, um, you know, uh, that certain expectations about how the field pays gets uh, gets gets thrown up in the air when there's kind of the market dynamics change. And so, um, and especially when we think about what makes for successful entrepreneurs, media entrepreneurs, you know, back to the question about talent, I mean, I think that um, that startups have to be, or if you're looking at entrepreneurial media ventures, a lot, or look at entrepreneurial ventures, period, there's a big chunk of compensation is in, um, is in equity, not in cash. And that, uh, that I think, is probably uh, a, a revolutionary and terrifying idea for journalism, but I think kind of a necessary part of reimagining the future of it, back to the focus on individual talent in that sense. And so I want to be clear, I'm not opposed to paying really high salaries. And in fact, I think the talent should probably earn more money than they do. I just think that the incentive and organizational structures of traditional news organizations were built around an economic reality that disappeared 15 years ago. I mean, disappeared. And so, you know, you know, newspapers had a really great run when they were effective monopolies on the public attention. And that meant that the, that you could really charge a ton of money for advertising. and. You know, after after a certain point, it was all gross. I mean, it was like incredible. I wish, <laughs> I wish there was a business that good today. And so, um, you know, I don't. I, I think of it just as about the realities of kind of an established market becoming disrupted. Okay, um, back right, Miss. We got six minutes, so let's keep them. Let's keep them short. Let's yes. keep them short. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, I don't have a good answer for you, other than there's actually a stunning number of newspapers in LA, just very few of them in English, and that that smells like a real opportunity for some consolidation and shared up, you know, shared shared resources. Full stop. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm Hamish. I'm a Neiman Fellow. I'm an international affairs correspondent for ABC News. Um, you, you, you said that there was an incentive for Google and Facebook to have this continued stream of quality free content. Um, how great is that incentive? Because some argument that they're really not that reliant on, on news content as such. 
I think they definitely want us to believe that they're not reliant on it. But I would look to the recent kind of actions in Europe where publishers really came together and said to Google, no, no, you have to pay for this content. And ended up with what looks like, we don't know how it's all going to shake out, it's looking like going to be a pretty compelling settlement for the news industry in Europe. And so my, it's you know, this is all, these companies are actually relatively opaque about what percentage of their traffic is about news, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think that uh, it's my assessment, without getting into the details, but trust me, I've looked at the details, it's my assessment that Facebook, Google, and other, other large digital platforms have a substantial reliance on the uh, legacy news media, especially the trusted brands in that space, and that uh, a fundamental reordering of that equation is necessarily in, in the offing. And the beginnings of it you can see in what the industry has done in Europe uh, in confronting that challenge. Okay. Um, question here. Uh, Nico, Dan Kennedy, I'm a Joan Shorenstein fellow as well. Um, you said some favorable things about the New York Times' approach to paid digital content. The Washington Post seems to be going in the opposite direction. You rarely run into a paywall and their digital traffic has gone through the roof. What, what do you think of what the Washington Post is up to? Does it make sense to you? Well, uh, I don't think it's a binary choice. I think if I had to guess what the Washington Post is doing, they're doing they're following the Amazon playbook to some extent of reducing as many barriers to entry as possible and then locking you in to some extent and figuring out how to make money from you then. And so I guess I would see their approach as possibly temporary. You know, temporary maybe two or three years, but it's still. I, I don't know that it's the, the end game. The end game business strategy can't possibly be scale because there's nothing in the industry that suggests scale is successful. Um, and I can talk about that at length. That you know, the you know Google Google has fundamentally shaped the future of advertising by charging on a performance basis, cost per click. And that has been a giant, unimaginable anchor weight dragging down all, all advertising pricing. And, um, you know, I used to say that, you know, a full page ad, a full page weekday ad in the LA Times to reach roughly 500,000 people is about 50 grand. A, an ad buy on LATimes.com to reach about about the same size audience might run you seven grand. You just went from fifty to seven to reach the same five hundred thousand people in a digital ad, a cost per click ad buy in Google might be twenty bucks. And so, digital advertising rates, what they call the CPMs have done nothing but decline for a decade and they're only going to keep declining because Google has set the has kind of basically arbitraged the pricing of advertising to such a bargain basement and uh, and so models built on scale make zero sense to me because I just don't see <laughs> any future there mm -hmm. well, uh, one final question I I shut you off and I I've, I have felt <laughs> I felt felt mild remorse, not great remorse, but mild remorse. So you got the last question, but it better be good. Uh, I thought so for a, for an individual journalist, like you said, it's much better times than for the publishers. And I really feel sorry for my publisher, but I also feel like there will be a time that the platforms are competing for journalistic content, and then maybe they will pay. Right now, I don't. Uh, right now, I see just there's still a lot of money to be made anywhere. Do you, do, there's obvious challenges when it comes to platforms paying journalists, but do you also see some? Do you see that as a as a, an opportunity in the future that just the, the platforms replace the publishers? Well, 
I don't know that they're going to replace publishers, but I think a fundamental reordering of the way revenue is distributed and associated with content is coming. To a large extent, Facebook and Google are sucking up revenue that publishers of content should be receiving. You could make that case. And publishers don't aren't getting it for some good reasons, actually. Like I'm not I'm not taking a side against Google and Facebook in that. Um, but the way the ecosystem is currently organized will will not sustain quality content production. And so there will be a reordering in how it works. And I don't know exactly what that reordering will look like in part because some legacy organizations are going to have a lot of money to throw around in shaping that and in part because the platforms google and facebook are still very young companies and maturing and figuring out what how they want to build their businesses and what role they want to have in shaping the public okay that that's where we're going to leave it i i think we've all had a absolute master class in the economics of a profession that's more than a profession that's an essential part of the public good of every society you're part of so I want to thank Nico for that but I also want I think the entire room would want him to go and visit his relative tomorrow <laughs> and, and Edna and I think the whole room would want him to say God bless Edna. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.